Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. So fall is here, my favorite, because it is sweater weather, um, <laughs> which makes me very happy. Colin, what did you do on the long weekend? I'll tell you what I did. I, I actually went to Niagara Falls because I'd never been before, and I decided I was going to ride up to Niagara-on-the-Lake with my bike. And I did. It was a really nice day. Beautiful out. Absolutely gorgeous. Get to Niagara-on-the-Lake, and I got a flat tire. I knew something was coming. Please tell me that you were with someone else. <laughs> I'll tell you, I was by myself. I don't know how to fix a flat tire. I didn't have anything with me to actually do. I was completely just, you know, idiotic in terms of my planning. But I got very lucky and found a shop that was able to repair my bike. They sent me on my way. And uh, I managed to make it back uh, by the skin of my teeth. And I, I say that because when I was pedaling back, the pedal started to have problems. And I really didn't think I was going to make it back to my hostel, but fortunately I got back. So here I am alive. I'm not to- laughing at your misfortune. I'm just, um, I'm laughing at something that my, my daughter said. I love being out in nature and I can just picture you like on the highway, like cycling and then your bike just giving away. My daughter said this great thing. You know, you might like nature, but nature doesn't like you. So I'm glad, <laughs> that, I'm glad that you're okay. Well, clearly my bike doesn't like me, so... Well, I'm glad that you're safe, Colin. Um, What documentary are we looking at today? Today, we are looking at Muslim in America, Legacy of Fear, from filmmaker Dia Khan, which looks at the rise in hate crimes against Muslims. To be Muslim today, you have a target on your back. They threw the bomb, and the bomb landed just here. The truth is our country's under attack from within. I think Islam hates us. We are the predators. You the prey. It makes you want to not exist in this world. It feels like you're never going to be good enough. We're going to Washington, everyone! I will certainly not be bullied by, you know, a very fearful, pathetic tyrant. That last voice you just heard was Congressperson Ilhan Omar, a Muslim-American woman who has faced her share of death threats since she came to office. You know, Nam, I'll tell you just off the top that this was a very difficult film to watch. Just the experiences described by some of the participants, it's just appalling. But I'll tell you also, you know, I felt very invigorated by my conversation with Dia. And the reason is because, you know, I spoke to her a few years ago about another film she did called White Right, Meeting the Enemy. And like in that film, you know, she talks to a lot of far-right extremists who have all sorts of crazy conspiratorial views about Muslims, about Islam. It's just very difficult to listen to them uh, describe their views. But then she has this way of kind of talking to them that really disarms them. And, you know, she kind of empathize. She gets them to empathize with her. And, you know, in some instances, she's actually gotten some of them to actually change their minds. So I just felt very happy to have had this conversation with her and... I just really love the work that she's doing. No, I I agree that she definitely has a way of talking to them. And I get what you're saying. I think it just kind of um, gives you hope that we can mend our differences. But I I don't know, maybe I'm naive, but I wish that we lived in a world where one didn't have to put themselves in a position to be harmed because they were looking to engage or to understand someone who might want them dead. Um, There were a few moments in the documentary where I held my breath because I was really worried about her safety. And yes, of course, suspicion of the so the the so-called other um, 
And yes, of course, the suspicion of the so-called other has been around for centuries, but it's interesting to see how social media and sites like Facebook contribute to the spreading of lies. No, actually, I'm, I'm going to call it for what it is, propaganda um, about people who might not look like, air quote, us. Yes, well said. And I, uh, yeah, the word you used, hope, I think that that's exactly what she gave me when I was talking to her. Um, just before we get to the interview, I want to just say that we spoke to Dia around the time of the federal election, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. So you might hear a few references to that. And content warning, we get into some very heavy discussions about hate crimes and Islamophobia. So listener discretion is advised. Here is my conversation with Dia Khan. Dia Khan, welcome back to OnDocs. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. Well, you know, I spoke to you about three years ago for White Right Meeting the Enemy, which looked at the white power movement in the United States. And your latest film, Muslim in America, Legacy of Fear, looks at what it's been like for Muslims living in the United States, particularly under the Trump administration. And I just want to know uh, at the start just to what extent the seeds for this film were planted in White Right. Oh, that's a really good question. You know, it did... um, When I was making White Right... A lot of the rhetoric that I was hearing was obviously towards every kind of group, but the the Muslim uh, problem, quote unquote, that they would, you know, some of them would say is something that was uh, uh, consistent throughout all the groups that I spoke with. You know, some of the groups were, oh, we have problems with Jewish people, other people, you know, uh, we don't like black people, we don't like so-and-so, so-and-so. But the Muslim thing seemed to be absolutely consistent. So, so... Uh, that was interesting to me and of note at the time. But that, but the, but the reason I ended up making this film was that I kept seeing that the that the level of hate crimes um, that were happening against Muslims was something that we weren't really hearing very much about. Um, and I was also curious to find out what is it like to be a Muslim in America when you have a president that singles you out. Uh, very loudly, very clearly, and with a lot of applause, as as an invading force, as an enemy within, and as a as a group of people that should no longer be allowed to come into America, and the ones that are already here should uh, be viewed with suspicion, and we need to figure out, you know, what these people are actually here for, and how how safe are they? So I, I was interested in what that must be like, and how does that play out in the lives of people and on the ground? Because rhetoric is never just rhetoric. You know, political rhetoric has real life implications. So I wanted to find out what that was. We're going to get to all Donald Trump and, and rhetoric and all that stuff in a bit. But I'm, um, you know, I, I found it interesting with like with this film, like you did with White Right, you know, you spoke to uh, white supremacists again, I guess, uh, the militia members, although I guess maybe they wouldn't call themselves that maybe. Um, but why did you want to, I guess, talk to those folks again? Well, I, I, I think it's always important to make sure that I speak with uh, everybody that's involved in in a certain circumstance or in a certain story. So I I, I didn't feel that the, the that the picture would be complete if I only spoke with people who were victims uh, of of hate crimes and victims of anti-Muslim uh, uh, sentiments. But I wanted to also try and understand why do people hold some of these views, and and um, where does it come from? How are some of these people becoming radicalized? Um, and you can't do that 
if you don't, you know, go and sit face to face with people who believe it. And 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 as with all my other films, I'm I'm just a big believer in going and engaging with people directly rather than having, for example, experts speak about them. I want them, whoever they are, on whatever side, I want people to be able to speak for themselves so that we can get closer to, to their motivations um, and also see whether there are gaps that where something different might be possible, where it might be possible to maybe have a, have a longer conversation, a deeper conversation about it beyond the slogans and, and the kind of talking points that a lot of these groups have. I think the last time we spoke, you said, you know, yeah, there were certain, I guess, risks in talking to uh, a member of like the Nazi party or something like that. Where, where the, did you have to take a, a precautions uh, this time with talking to militia members? Uh, I was, um, I had to be a bit careful because the militia, you know, they're, they're all armed. Um, you know, which not all the white supremacists were necessarily armed. Uh, so that was something that I was um, very wary of and cautious of. But I still. Uh, you're probably going to think I'm an idiot for saying this, but it was still, you know, even doing this film, it was just myself and one colleague, again, the same colleague from from uh, White Right. So I still didn't do security and things like that. So I, I, I don't know. That's probably not very smart of me. But, but you know, I'm here. I'm still talking to you. So it turned out okay. Um, but, you know, but some of them, what's interesting about the militia guys is, you know, as you said a little bit earlier, they do not consider themselves to be racist um, uh, or, 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 you know, white supremacists. They they consider themselves to be patriots. And also several of the their members are ex-military guys, you know? So, mm-hmm. so um, I think that's an interesting element as well. And they very much, I mean, they sincerely feel that their country is under threat, that their country is under attack, and that they, if the, if the government fails to protect the American people, they are willing to step up and do that. Um, and, they, and they do feel that the country is under attack by Muslims. And they do feel that the government is too soft on, on, uh, on Muslims until Trump came. That Trump is the first president that had the courage to say it out loud and to say it how it really is and call them for the invaders that they are, the Muslims. Well, this idea that they're under attack, could you talk a bit about just why it is they think that way? Well, I think um, the reason they think that way is because of the information that they consume. So the only stories that they know about Muslims are the stories of uh, terrorist attacks. The only stories that they hear about Muslims are at the time, you know, in, up until just recently were the stories of ISIS and beheadings. And, and if it wasn't that, then it was what do Muslim people do to their own women? And so it was so the, the kind of the the what they sort of marinate themselves in, in terms of ideologically, it's it's just information like that on on top of each other, on top of each other, on top of each other to where it just becomes... And then you have a president who's also legitimizing it. So it just becomes this very hardened view and a very concrete view that this is who these people are. And, you know, they, they're blowing us up. They're, they're shooting in San Bernardino. And I'm, I mean, I can actually understand the fears. And I even said that to them. I said, look, I understand that you would be afraid. If the only thing you ever hear about Muslims are these stories, I'd be terrified too. So I get that. But you have, you know, but, but what I kept trying to speak with them about is, look, you know, the, the school shootings that you have, 
as as somebody who's not American, I don't assume that every single white American guy that walks the streets here is a school shooter mm. or is going to bomb an abortion clinic or is going to go shoot up a black church or or a synagogue. You know, it's it's you have to understand that, you know, the 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 the, the Muslims are more than the worst people among them. You know, and and so it, it's and it, but that's hard for them to wrap their heads around because I think Muslims have become so dehumanized, uh, both through sort of the the politics of this country, but also in terms of the the kind of media's selective coverage of Muslims as well. You know, it's not enough to you know obsessively and wall to wall coverage of terrorist attacks when the perpetrator is a Muslim. And then every once in a while throw in like a like a fluffy feel good piece of oh look this is how they pray and oh look they fast and oh aren't they nice and sweet and look they have families too. I mean that's not that's not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, so so even though Muslims have been here for a very, very, very long time in America uh, most Americans know very little about them. They, they, the Muslims only came into the sort of American consciousness uh, at 9-11. And since then, it's been nothing but terror, 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 terror. Well, let's talk about some of the, the folks you spoke to, some who are Muslim. Um, and, you know, some of them came here as refugees. Could you talk just a little bit about, I guess, what they've been experiencing uh, in, I guess, the last four or five years, I guess, I guess specifically under the Trump administration? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Many of the, the people that came um, before Trump was president, uh, but have grown up sort of in this era of the, the, the sort of this, this age of the war on terror, they very clearly noticed the difference. They said, look, our lives changed on 9-11. To be a Muslim in America at the point of 9-11, every single thing changed. Then everything sort of calmed down a bit until Donald Trump's uh, election campaign, actually, because he started during his election campaign to speak about Muslims. And what they said is in terms of their day-to-day life, they feel that attacks against them, uh, people feeling comfortable saying aggressive things to them, people uh, uh, engaging with them in a hostile and aggressive way, down to actually physically attacking uh, individuals, attacking mosques, attacking Muslim businesses, attacking even you know children. That 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 just became the norm, and it became okay, but it also remained somewhat invisible for the rest of American society. It's, it was sort of just something that a lot of Muslims, I think, just took as, this is just, we have, we just have to put up with this, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and when I started looking into this topic and was researching the film, and I wasn't able, obviously, to include all the stories that I found, but I found story after story after story of attacks against uh, Muslims, physical violent attacks against Muslims. And I kept looking at it going, I've never heard of this. I'm, mm-hmm. I've literally, I've never seen this before, never heard of it. Uh, you know, and I mean, one story I wasn't able to include was a, a young, uh, a group of young Somali men who were just walking down the street after playing basketball. Some guy walks up to them and starts shooting. He actually started, I mean, they survived and they managed to, I mean, some of them were very, very hurt, but they managed to get away. Uh, and his Facebook page was drenched with uh, Donald Trump and drench with far-right conspiracy theories and, and, and propaganda about uh, how Muslims are just going to destroy the, 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 the American way of life and, and America. Um, so I think, uh, I think you know, the, the experience of Muslims and in particular refugees that have come in recent years has been uh, a very difficult one. And, and a lot of the Muslims that I spoke with 
didn't even really want to speak about what was going on because they were afraid that they were going to be even more targeted. That if they say out loud that I'm a victim of this, that it's going to happen more. What did you say to them to, I guess, change their minds about speaking? Well, one of the things that I spoke with them about is the importance of, of telling the truth. And, and you know, the, the, if you don't say out loud what, what is going on, then people won't know. And then, then, the, then change also can't be mobilized. Uh, but at the same time, and I was very clear about this as well, I mean, who am I to tell people who feel really afraid to come out and, and, and share their story if they, if they feel that that's going to bring more attacks against them? So, you know, so some of them did not want to speak. Some of them spoke with me just personally. They were like, look, we want you to hear this, but we don't want to say it publicly because we can't move. We can't go anywhere. We're in this community and we constantly have certain groups that show up at our door and we're afraid. We've got small children. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, one of the mosque, uh, one of the mosques and community centers that I went to, uh, they really didn't want to talk and they eventually did talk. Uh, but they were like, look, we have people here that come and film our girl children uh, when they're out playing. Like they'll come and they'll just, you know, record them and then put up videos on Facebook or whatever and go look at how they're oppressing their girls and look at these disgusting Muslims and look at what they're doing. They're, you know, they're breeding like cockroaches and taking over, you know, and he's like, you know, these are our, these are our, these are our kids. Yeah. You know, and we don't know how to keep them safe and we have nowhere to go. This is it. And and one, several of the refugees in particular, it kind of gives me chills thinking about it again. We're saying that, look, we left war, we left violence and we didn't realize that we were coming to another quote unquote war zone and to another place where we will not be safe, where we will not be welcome. Yes, we can eat and yes, we have shelter, but we're afraid. Well, I, I mean, I want to ask you about a couple of uh, people that you spoke to because their um, experiences of Islamophobia is it's it's really um, it's horrifying. I mean, in, in particular, Reis, I think it's Reis Buyan. I hope I'm saying his name right. But, you know, he was actually he was just talking about him. He was shot, actually, by someone, yeah. right? Yeah. So he was uh, so about 10 days after 9-11. Um, so, so race was a was a was an immigrant from Bangladesh and just was uh, he comes from a military background and his I think his life dream was to be able to come to America and to study in America and, and one day hopefully get to live in America. So he did manage to come. He was studying and at nights he was working at a gas station. Uh, and uh, ten days after nine eleven, uh, a man basically showed up at his gas station and asks him uh, and, and puts a gun in his face. And race just automatically puts money on the counter, thinking this is a robbery, this is. And the, and the guy doesn't take the money. And he says, where are you from? And before he can say it, he shot him in the face. Hmm. Shot race in the face. Race actually survived the attack, um, uh, but two other men didn't. So this man, uh, uh, Mark Stroman, is is the attacker's name. And he was a he was a white supremacist. Had had you know been in and out of prison through his life. Um, he killed two people, was arrested, and then was convicted and was put on death row. What race did once race was able to heal from his physical wounds and also try and sort of emotionally try and piece back together his life, he felt that he was given another shot at life to do something positive, to try and break the cycle of, of hate and violence. So he mounted a campaign to support and spare the life of his attacker. So he wanted him to, to not be put to death. He felt that he could be 
uh, more useful to society if he was still alive. And in the course of time that, that Mark Stroman was in prison, he started changing his views and then he also heard about his victim out there going to the ends of the earth trying to stop this execution. I think the day of his execution, I mean, they, they, did, they didn't hear it, so he was still killed, but at the, the day of Mark Stroman's uh, execution, race was uh, at one of the courts trying to have it overturned, trying to plead with them to spare his life, and, and they didn't. Despite race's campaign to spare him, Stroman was executed. His last words were, hate is going on everywhere. It has to stop. Hate causes a lifetime of pain. He was never a serial killer, never was a murderer before, but got inspiration from the media, from the people in power, in media and public office, to take up arms against innocent human beings. And the cycle keeps going back and forth and back and forth. It has to stop it somewhere. But what's interesting to me, and this I don't think actually even made it into the film, but Mark Stroman, uh, when um, he was filmed by, by, by people while he was still in, in prison, one of the things he said, he said, I watched uh, a certain TV channel in America. He said, I watched it and I saw those Twin Towers come down over and over and over again. And he said, and I kept watching the coverage about these people over and over and how much they hate us and how they're going to destroy us. And he said, I was going to stop them. I was going to take revenge and I was going to send a message to them. He said, this is war. What they did, they, Muslims in his eyes, all Muslims, what they did is an act of war. And what I'm doing is a response to their gesture of war. So in many ways, he's echoing also what we said earlier about the militias. You know, he's also, it's he, in his mind, this was a defensive posture. Just like the any, any of the militia guys you'll speak to, they'll say, we are not an offensive force, we are a defensive. So even when we commit violence, it is in the posture of defending our homeland, even if it inflicts life or death on somebody else. So, so that I thought was really interesting. And, and Mark Stroman and Race Bouillon, I'm mean, giving away the film now, but, but you know, <laughs> they, they actually ended up becoming friends. And, 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 and Mark Stroman called Race his brother before he died. I think that level of forgiveness, I mean, I don't know many people who could forgive someone who did that to them. And it's extraordinary. Also, and, and also, yeah, and also go uh, to the extremes of, of trying to get their death sentence overturned. Is that, do you think that was unique? To race, or did you come across other folks who kind of also felt like him? You know, were, they were able to forgive uh, their attackers. I, I actually, several of the people that I spoke to were able to forgive their attackers, and I kept asking them because to me it was really extraordinary as well because it would be so understandable for them to hate and be bitter and to dehumanize their attacker. But so many of them didn't. And what both race and some of the other people that I spoke with said, they said, look, this person is still a human. And this person is a product of their environment and their childhood and their conditioning. Uh, and whatever radicalization in a way that they've gone through in terms of what information they consume. Uh, but it's still a human being. And when I asked race in particular, you know, but I, I said, look, I understand all that. I, and, I, I, you know, I believe that too. But I said, but that, that distance between that and actually forgiving him, that's, that's, that's a very big leap. And he said, he said, it is what my Islamic faith teaches me. 
He said, my way of expressing my faith as a Muslim is to stand on the side of mercy and on the side of compassion and on the side of forgiveness. So again, that sort of uh, that story, that way of behaving, that way of expressing and exercising your faith, your Islamic faith, that story we've never heard. The way, quote unquote, most Muslims behave, as far as we're told in, in our public stories, is you do something to them, they'll cut your head off, right? So, so that's also why it was important to put this forward, because this is not just racist story, but so very many of the people that I spoke to did that. You know, there's this other young woman, uh, Asma Jama, uh, who's a, 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 um, a refugee as well from Somalia, and she was attacked, violently attacked by a woman and cut her face open. Um, and in court, she stands up as well and say, look, it's not what you did is not okay. And that's what Ray says as well. It's not like they're excusing or saying what they did was all right. They're saying what you, what you did is not okay. But I know you're human and I know you're struggling just like I'm struggling. And I want you to know I forgive you. But I just wanted to tell you in front of everybody today that I do forgive you. I just want you to, at the end of all this, to understand that we're all the same. It doesn't matter what's on my head. It doesn't matter the skin, the color of my skin. We're all the same human beings. We're fighting for the same rights. It gives me goosebumps even saying it. <laughs> but I mean, that's it. I mean, to me, that's just the. Not that that can be expected or should be an expectation of people who are on the receiving end of, 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 of violence like this. But it gives me so much hope, and it gives me so much. Um, makes me feel that somewhere in there resides the solution, which is in the cycle of fear and violence and hatred, somebody has to break that cycle, right? Somebody has to interrupt that cycle. Otherwise, it just becomes somebody who says, I'm a Muslim, does something. Somebody who received that violence continues, then revenge again, and it just never ends. And, and everybody becomes more afraid, retreats from each other more and more. Whereas the races of the world and asthmas of the world are going, no, I hereby break it you don't get to continue this cycle anymore. And, and I mean, truly, in there is where, where the answer is to how we're actually going to stop this. Yeah, I, I, and, you know, you talked about, you know, going to these communities when you're, when you're trying to, you know, talk to people about filming. You know, they were afraid of, I guess, like, you know, being exposed, you know, being public and, and you know, because people were going around and filming their kids and stuff. I guess to what extent these hate crimes, the effect it has on a community? Like, what is it doing to them, like, psychologically? How does it, I guess, affect their sense of space and safety? I mean, you went to Dearborn, Michigan, which has a large Muslim population. I think Bloomington, Minnesota, which also uh, has a large um, Muslim population. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of uh, the effect these hate crimes are having in these communities. And I guess, you know, what you said earlier just about, um, you know, the ability to forgive, you know, is kind of as a way to kind of get ourselves out of this uh, morass. I wonder if you could talk a bit about all that. I think, I think, you know, what is really striking to me is the psychological and the emotional impact that, and, and the sort of prints that this leaves in the lives of people. You know, I, I kept speaking with actually children as well, and I didn't want to include them necessarily on, on screen, but, you know, some of them didn't understand why people hate them. They, they didn't understand why people are afraid of them because they in turn were afraid of the, the, the white Americans, you know? So you sort of, and, and, and some of them uh, said, you know, I, 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 I thought I could be the president, um, but what it did to her hearing the president at the time 
speaking about people that who look like her and who come from backgrounds like her in a way that sort of positions her as the enemy and positions her as not American, not welcome, not one of us, uh, is devastating. And I think, generally speaking, what it's doing to a lot of people is that it's making, um, I think it's making people go inside and, and be afraid. And I think it's making people retreat from the wider society. But then for others, it's also making them sort of take the, the, the position that we have to be out there even more. We have to go out and talk to people and let them understand what Muslims are really like. And, you know, maybe if they're not going to get that from the, the media coverage and news coverage, then, you know, maybe it's up to us as individuals to go out there and, and help people understand and help them see us as human. I mean, that's tragic. <laughs> that's what has to happen. What made me sad was listening to... Um I think his name is Bakhtash. Bakhtash, Ak- yeah, yes. Akadi, and he's an Afghan refugee. He was a military interpreter in Afghanistan. Yeah. And to hear him say that, you know, as a kid when he was getting beat up, the part of them thought that he deserved it. Yeah. And I worried that, you know, perhaps these communities that are, are dealing with these rise in hate crimes, that the kids are, are starting to feel that way, you know? I, th- I think they are. I think, I think it's doing two different things. I think to some of them... It's, it's breaking them to the point where they feel like they do deserve it uh, and that this is okay and that this is normal and that this is something you just have to put up with. This is just what it means to live in this country. And I think for others, it's breaking them in a way that it's hardening them so much that it's making them become angry and fearful and also somewhat aggressive toward, in, in, in the kind of desire to want to protect themselves. I think they're thinking... I'm going to have to become aggressive. I'm going to have to become really hard uh, back. Otherwise, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to survive this. So, and, and both ways of coping with this, you know, is just, it's devastating and it's heartbreaking. You know, and, and these really, I mean, really, they are kids. I mean, there are so many kids in these communities and you just see it in their faces uh, that they know that they're not enough. They know that there's nothing they can do that will ever give them complete acceptance, uh, which is horrible, I think. So sitting here today, what would you say to six-year-old Batnash? I would tell my six-year-old self that no matter what I do, I'll always be loved and that'll always be enough and that I should explore, but eventually the thing that I'm seeking is actually within. And I also sort of wondered, and this is probably just like a very small number, but like there's a woman in the film and her name escapes me, but she's, she talks on a lot of right wing or um, media outlets. And I think she's uh Christian, but I believe she's Lebanese. Uh, yeah. Lebanese. And yeah. I forget her Bridget name. Gabriel. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, you know, she's not Muslim, but you know, she's someone who would necessarily be, she wouldn't escape prejudice from people who have something against Muslims. I mean, she would certainly, I mean, maybe she has, I don't know, but she might herself be the victim of an attack one day. And to see someone like her spout all this horrible uh, stuff about Muslims, I just, I I can't, I hope that, you know, we're not creating a generation of kids who sort of feel this internalized hatred that they may want to, you know, take such an extreme opposite reaction and actually start to hate other Muslims, you know what I'm saying? Like it's just, yeah, it's, yeah. that's the yeah. sort of thing I kind of I wonder about. 
Yeah, I mean, I think her case is quite unique. But I, 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 I sort of thought the same thing, going, well, you know, you look like the rest of us. I mean, you could, for somebody who doesn't know better, they could come for you just as easily, right. you know. Uh, but I do think that she's a very, very well-known figure in the kind of anti-Muslim movement in America and also actually across borders as well, that I think that, you know, the kind of people who would have it in them to do something would actually probably know who she is and wouldn't do it because they <laughs> yeah. would be a fan of hers. Right. Uh, um, but, you know, one of the other things that I think is really important to consider about this is people like her. Uh, there are a few other kind of, you know, commentators, quote unquote, about um, uh, th- that are a part of this. I mean, there's an actual anti-Islam, anti-Muslim movement out there that is across borders that you have actually in, in Canada as well. You know, we've had it in Norway. You know, it's, it's what Breivik was radicalized and, and inspired by as well. You know, some of these speakers have a tremendous impact on the radicalization of people, you know? And it's, um, you know, and, and some of these manifestos that you look at, like for example, even, you know, Anders Breivik, the, the Norwegian terrorists manifesto, he, he by name mentioned some of these people, you know, as, as being his sources of information. So that's the sort of other very dangerous part of this is that you've got this sort of toxic mixture of the president at the time speaking in the way that he was, all that you ever hear about Muslims, you know, in your sort of public space is that they commit violence and they cut your heads off. And then you've got all these media commentators and Fox News and then, you know, farther right wing even than that, that are saying the same thing and are saying they are coming for you. They are here to invade. They don't want to assimilate. They don't this. They don't that. Um, and you're going to lose your America to these people. Um, I mean, that would be enough to to. to f- flip a switch in somebody to go, well, you know, yeah, my goodness, we're under threat. And our government doesn't, you know, until Trump, anybody else doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And also, we didn't really touch on this in the film, but it's I think it's a huge part of the same sort of continuum of, of this kind of story of Islamophobia everywhere, but in particularly in America is, you know, do you remember the, the, the huge sort of kerfuffle really around uh, Obama. He's a Muslim. He's a Muslim. And I remember even, uh, was it John McCain, I think, and people were really like applauding him and going, oh, look, he really took a stand. You know, ma'am, I can tell you he is not a Muslim. Oh, wow. Bravo, bravo, bravo. (laughs) And, And I remember watching that going, so what if he was? You are essentially confirming that he's not that one of those bad people. So the premise is Muslim equals bad, equals negative. Oh my goodness, he's not that. He's a Christian, okay? He goes to church. And you just sort of go, you know, when the bar has been set that low, <laughs> it's, you know, what, what, what chance does anybody have? What chance does, does some little kid living in a poor neighborhood in Minneapolis have when the president has to be, you know, the former president has to be defended and, and you know, kind of held in that sort of way? I mean, that's the, that's the and I was saying this earlier, to your colleague, actually, uh, that you know, if I posted something today on my social media that that defends Muslims or or points out that Muslims are also victims of terrorism, Muslims from the Muslim side, that the biggest victim of of, of kind of Islamic quote unquote terrorism are actually other Muslims, or that Muslims are on the receiving end of of of, of hate crimes and uh, and um, and hate from the various hate groups, which there are around 800 hate groups now active in America, that they're under threat from them or that this is going on or whatever, the amount of hate I would get 
and the amount of pushback I would get from people, why don't you talk about your own jihadis? Why don't you do? You people cut your women. You people do this. You people do that. Your prophet is this. Your prophet is... I mean, just it would be a complete rejection of the fact that this experience also exists and that this also goes on. The story has to just be this very narrow, tight little box of what Muslims are, what they're allowed to be. And the, the, the most important thing that they're not allowed to be is a human. I wonder if the way, it, we, part of the way we get out of this, and this, maybe this is, um, I don't know, maybe this is uh, naive of me, but I find that a lot of times representation in film and TV where you see you know, black characters, you see Asian characters, you see gay characters. If you saw more Muslims in, say, a Marvel movie, for example, and actually I think we're about to have our first Marvel uh, f- superhero who's a Muslim, Miss um, Marvel. Um, if we saw things like that more often, do you think that would go away of, I guess, maybe uh, teaching people, educating people in, in, this, in us and in, in showing the humanity of Muslims, right? Yes, I, I absolutely think so. I don't think it would completely sort of cure it, but I think it would go a very long way in humanizing Muslims. And it would go a really long way in, in, in allowing Americans to connect with the fact that these are people, I relate to this person, I relate to his struggle with his kids or his struggles to just meet the, his mortgage or just, you know, the, the, the pounding of life, basically. I, I recognize myself in this person. The minute it becomes possible for us to empathize with each other, a lot of the fear, a lot of the hatred and aggression does just fall away. And this is why I think stories are so important. And especially the stories in our public space is so important. So I completely agree with you. I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go away. I mean, we see you know, if, if we look at African-American people and how prevalent uh, African-American people have been, you know, whether in sports or in pop culture or whatever, it hasn't made racism go away. But there, but there is something else that happens with the younger generations where a lot of that sort of just falls off their, 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 their brains. And I think the similar, a, a similar thing would definitely happen with Muslims as well. And it's, you know, I think Bakhtash also said it in the, in the film is that it's, it's all about the stories that we tell. If the only story we know about each other is a, is a dangerous one, is a, is a hateful one, is a violent one, is a dehumanizing one, then that's how people will behave. I mean, as I say, in some ways, I don't blame some of these people who are on the anti-Muslim side, uh, who are becoming radicalized. Um, but, you know, but they're being very cynically uh, groomed in a way by people that, you know, whether it's these sort of speakers that want to sell their books and want to kind of, you know, get, get people to pay membership fees for their organizations or whatever, basically want to pick people's pockets. Uh, or if it's, you know, politicians like Trump and others like him in other countries who want to, you know, take people's votes, who want to sort of weaponize the fear that they have and, and direct it into voting for them. Uh, it's all, you know, a lot of average Americans, just the base fact that they don't know anything about Muslims other than what they're being fed in this sort of more radical way. Many of them are very, very well-intentioned, you know, people but they just don't know and i i feel bad that they're being exploited in this way uh but you know when we also speak about sort of the mainstreaming of islamophobia and this kind of anti-muslim sort of hysteria 
you know, you, you look at what's going on right now in Afghanistan and you look at how politicians around the world and in, in the Western world are speaking about it. They're speaking very little about it. Very few people are saying we're going to take X number of, of Afghan refugees because most people don't want more Muslims in their countries. I mean, I know you've got an election right now. Norway's got an election right, right now. If in any of these countries, your politicians, our politicians came out and they said, you know what, we're going to take 200,000 Afghans tomorrow, they will lose the election. That should tell us something. We know that's a fact, right? So that should tell us how deep-rooted Islamophobia really is, right? And, and you know, we all heard what, what um, Macron said in France, you know, we are going to make sure that, that the shores of, of, of uh, Europe are not flooded with these Afghans. Right. I mean, what does this mean? What well, does this mean? And, and, and a lot of times, you know, these... these media commentators, these politicians, you know, they'll say these outrageous things about Muslims, about Islam, about anything really. And, you know, it always comes up, this whole free speech, you know, like if we block them, if we try to deplatform them, you know, it, it always bumps up against that, that, you know, it's that we're, we're you know, stripping away their right to, to say what they want. And, you know, I wonder just what you think of that, because I mean, obviously, you know, Trump's not president anymore. He doesn't even have his Twitter account. Um, you know, what do we do about that, I guess, um, that that argument that I guess uh, these these people have the right to say what they want? They do. But the, so, uh, yeah. yeah, but how do you, I guess, then, I guess, confront what they're saying? Do you debate them? Like, what do you do? I, 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 I so I am of the belief that, that I am so not a fan of, of uh, restricting speech. I, for me, the only line comes to the incitement of violence. Like, other than that, I think everything is fair game. I don't like it, uh, but I believe that that bad speech, the answer to bad speech, which you know I consider these people's speech to be very toxic and very, very bad, I think the answer to that is more speech, actually not less speech. And, and part of the way these people are radicalized, a lot of these various movements are radicalized, actually on all sides of this, they thrive in darkness. They thrive with any kind of compression of uh, against what they're doing because it makes them it kind of uh, using wrong terms for the wrong groups now, but it almost like martyrs them, like like it makes them feel like they're victims, and their radicalization is essentially um, predicated on their victimhood. So it actually helps, it actually fuels their movement to be banned and to be deplatformed and all of that. It doesn't actually reduce it. It almost gives them more legitimacy because they are able to say to their followers, look, we are the keepers of the ultimate truth and the ultimate truth that the mainstream media and the whatever, whatever is, is you know, unwilling to face. So it almost sort of confirms what they're saying rather than dismantles it. So I think if anything, us, the, the rest of us on this other side of it have to do a better job at countering it and, and, and not just countering it. You know, I think what we often tend to do with movements, you know, hate movements, whatever form they are, we, the rest of us sort of take a position of I'm against you. I'm against that. That's our position. I think what we're going to have to eventually get to is articulating very clearly uh, what we are for. Because whenever we are against these people, they have already set the table of what the premise of the engagement is. They are for something. We are against something. Against is never very powerful. So we have to become better at articulating what we're for. And, and, and once that becomes more compelling 
and is clear and can touch more people and doesn't feel exclusive and doesn't feel judgmental of people that are different than us as well. Uh, or, or, than, or, or and judgmental towards people who hold problematic views but might be a little bit more open-armed even towards them, I think we might stand a better chance of, of the, on the free speech side of it. Um, but I, 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 as much as I really despise, despise and dislike what some of these people say and would like to not listen to it, uh, I don't think deplatforming them is the answer. We have to wrap up our conversation. I, I could talk to you for an hour, honestly. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> this has been really great. But, you know, I, I wonder, you know, if you have yeah, well, more to I, say right on this topic. Now, I'm doing or a film do about domestic violence, like intimate partner violence. Hmm. Uh, I'm actually in the U.S. making the film right now and then stopped a couple of uh, weeks ago when the Afghan thing happened because it's just been nonstop trying to support some of the, the women on the ground. Um, but, yeah, so, 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 I mean, I think... I think I'm interested in the divisions in our societies. And I think the reason I'm interested in the divisions in our societies and when the kind of polarization that's happening in so many of our societies is because I'm obsessed with wanting to try to find solutions. I'm obsessed with wanting to try to understand what's really going on and understand the human side of it and the human uh, motivators because if we can reach that then we can also try and interrupt some of this and we can hopefully get a get to better solutions and the reason i'm so obsessed with all of this is ultimately i want us all muslim or not muslim all of us to find a better way uh, of how we're going to live together how we're going to manage our differences how we're going to do this across our differences. Um, so I'm interested in difference, but also what makes us the same, uh, and see if we can bridge these gaps of, of fear, bridge the gaps of difference, bridge the gaps of division and hatred. So I, 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 in one form or another, I'm sure I'll always make a, a, a film about that, but from different, probably, viewpoints. Uh, but but beyond that, you know, obviously I have other interests as well in terms of stories. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, I, I think I would be making um, like this this film I'm doing right now about domestic violence has nothing to do with immigrants or refugees or Muslims or white supremacists or Nazis or jihadis or anything mm. like that. <laughs> Well, Which my mom will be really happy to know. She just is, is horrified. I've I've stopped telling her what I do, and she know and she knows that. And then she sees the film and she just yells at me and goes, "Why do you keep doing this? Why are you sitting these with the, there's a gun guy? Why are you doing this?" I go, "Well," and she's like, "Now you have a child. You have to be responsible. You have to have a, you know." Which she's right. You know, I did put some plans in place for that. I mean, I yeah. did I, because I have a three-year-old now, and I did, you know, tell the person who was helping me, and, and I contacted the Norwegian embassy as well, and I was like, "Look," which I've never had to do before, hmm. but I did say, "I said, look, if for some reason anything was to happen to me, you know, please make sure she can leave the U.S." Yeah. Well, I hope it doesn't ever come to that. <laughs> I, I, I hope not either. I hope not either. But now I have to make plans like that, which yeah. is which is very strange, actually. Uh, to have to even think think about that. Yeah. Well, Dia, thank you so much for joining us again. This was great. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll do it again. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to. <laughs> I want to. I want to talk to you about your your uh, your film on domestic violence. That's another kind of uh, you know very topical and especially with COVID, right? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, with COVID, we're just seeing all the kind of problems of our society really, really come to the surface, which is interesting. I think. And that's the podcast. 
Muslim in America, Legacy of Fear is streaming right now on TVO.org and on TVO's YouTube channel. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and executive producer Lori Few. We'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>